0: Please take your Bibles with me this evening and turn to Philippians chapter 2. Question, how do we live this way? What way, Pastor? I'll tell you in just a moment. Uh, Several months ago now, in our time together in Philippians chapter 2, we had been talking through this important concept of bearing the mind of Christ. And this evening, we are going to seek to transition back into the mindset of Philippians chapter 2, as we did this morning in 2 Timothy chapter 1, uh, bringing us back, as I, I did not continue the series throughout the, the time where we were um, not together, um, trying to bring us our, our minds back into... This, this frame of mind as it relates to the context of the particular passages within which we were, um, we were preaching. So we asked a question concerning the commission which we were given at the beginning of Philippians chapter 2, uh, really last time we were in this passage a couple of, uh, about six weeks ago. The call is that we would each esteem other better than ourselves, that we would look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others, if you recall. And the questions that we asked, the the first question that we asked is, why live this way? Why should we at all live in the way that we're being called to here, appropriating in our mindset that which was first in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, appropriating in our mind the mind of Christ? Why live this way? And we gave three answers to that question. The first answer was simply because we're told to, right? Right. Why should we appropriate the mind of Christ? Why should we live in this way where I actually esteem other better than myself? Why should I live in this way uh, where I look not on my own things, but every man also on the things of others? Well, because God tells us to, number one. Number two, because there are rewards for it in heaven. And number three, because as we seek to obey the Lord and as we live out the fullest expressions of the Lord's Calling upon our lives, even as we studied the last uh, several Tuesdays in Psalm one and two, uh, the Lord grants us the fruit of the spirit, namely joy." We then took a week in between and spoke about the nature of Jesus Christ as God, as a member of what in theology we call the Trinity, and we recognized this reality that Jesus Christ is God. Now, this week, as we continue in that context, we ask this next question. We are called to have the mind of Christ. Why should we live this way? Well, we should live this way because God tells us to. We should live this way because there are rewards for it in heaven. We should live this way because there is joy in it on this earth. Now we ask, how? How do we live this way? It's quite a tall order, isn't it, to think about Esteeming other better than ourselves. Looking not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. This is not an easy thing. This is not a natural thing. How do we do this? And this may seem somewhat like a simple concept, but the answer is, is not only interesting and wonderful and blessed, um, but as we might expect, it has everything to do with God and faith. And this message is truly important. I don't think that all that many Christians live this command out in a manner that works out this blessedness. Even this, as it relates to the elements going on right now, the, the, the things that we've had to deal with right now. We spoke just before the service, and we spoke this morning, and it's in our little uh, preparation write-up for those of you that, that received it. I, I think everyone has to some degree or another. Um, that we have masks in case someone requested of us. Well, that's a way that we could think not every man on his own things, but every man on the things of others, right? That's a way that we could respect the needs, concerns, and cares of another above ourselves by, if the situation called for it, putting on a mask. And we'd say, okay, well, that's very simple, but it's not a simple question in our society, is it? It's not a simple concept in our society. As a matter of fact, it has become a point, a major point of contention within our society. We don't think about these things perhaps as often as we ought or perhaps in the context that we ought. You know, many Christians are working so hard to do what is right. They're working hard to obey the Bible. They're working hard to serve one another, but finding in this obedience sorrow or frustration rather than joy, feeling daily like a failure rather than a victor, feeling, as we said in our message about why, that their actions are a net loss, that, that, that to do this is actually to lose something rather than a net gain. And this happens because far from obeying in the manner that God has prescribed, what many Christians do is more or less, as we have spoken before, uh, self-discipline that they're going to do what they're going to do they're going to do what's asked of them they're going to put another ahead of themselves in a manner that is that is self-discipline oriented rather than spirit empowerment oriented and while self-discipline is good no doubt self-discipline will never produce the fruit by which as God's people we can live in joyful obedience to the word of God we need more than self-discipline don't we we need more than just our parents raising us to think of others. We need more than just cultural expectations of of compliance. We need more than that if we are going to find a life both of obedience and of joy. We need the fruit of the Spirit. What Paul called in Philippians chapter 1, the fruits of righteousness. Now our passage is small today, but it's very consequential. I want to read both verses as we begin, and then we'll break them up one by one. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, the Bible says this: "Wherefore, my beloved brethren, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure." Uh, if you'll indulge me for a second, I actually want to back up. I hadn't intended to do this, but it's been a while since we've been in this passage. I actually meant to mention on the YouTube announcement this last week, you should probably go back and watch uh, the last message before jumping in this evening um, because uh, the continuity is there for you, right, on YouTube or or listening on on podcast, but but it has been a little while. So let me begin reading in uh, verse 1, and we'll read through verse 13. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye may be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, Thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. Even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also had highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven, and things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more. In my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So these two verses are startling in their contrast in a manner of speaking. Uh, We are called in verse 12 to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. And yet this call is given to us acknowledging that it is God that works in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure we have to reconcile these somehow in our minds, and we're going to do that together this evening. From verse 12, it seems as though there's some concept of my, my, my working, my doing, my, my, my uh, uh, um, strong contribution to this element of salvation, whatever that salvation might be. And then from verse 13, it seems as though man has no power to do anything except that which God is working in him. That God does all the work to the point where I can't perhaps even want what God wants us, uh, me to want without God making me want it. So how do we explain these things individually and then how do they fit together? Well, let's work through it. As we step into the passage today, it's absolutely essential that we remember the context, that we remember the thing into which the exhortation calls us. It's related from the, uh, to the call to obey. And this call to obey is this called, which Paul is saying here, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Paul speaks here in direct reference to assuming upon ourselves the mind of Christ. Uh, Assuming upon ourselves this mindset whereby we look not every man on our own things, but every man on the things of others. Now, it's natural for us to understand these verses to be written within the context of this greater passage. But we can also see, just by reading the next couple of verses that we're not dealing with a context change. When Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. When Paul says, it's God that worketh in you, both the will and the do of his good pleasure. We're, Paul is not going outside of the context for this. He's not changed his thinking. He's not changed his mind on this. Verse 14, which we'll talk about next week, Paul says, do all things without murmurings and disputings. This is definitively within, as, as an extension of this context, Right? Of the mind of Christ. And then in verses 15 and 16 is the reason that we can be a testimony to the world. We'll talk about these things next week. So then, as we approach verses 12 and 13, we are going to do so through the lens of what Paul has already told us. We're not coming outside of context. We're not coming, we, we, we can't just impose a new context upon the passage. We've got to keep it contained within the context that Paul is teaching. What does that mean? Well, primarily where I'm going with that is that means we're not talking about being born again. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This is not talking about getting saved. It's God that worketh in you both the will and to do of his good pleasure. This is not in the context of getting saved. We know that there's nothing in the context that's talking about being saved, right? He's writing to a church. He's talking about the church assuming the mind of Christ. He's talking about living out the fullness of, of Christ's uh, mind in their lives. He's not talking about the gospel. And so we, we, this is where we're going with this. This is why I, I laid that foundation. So we have here in verse 12 a wherefore. Wherefore, my beloved... Thus, therefore, in light of the call that you have to assume the mind of Christ, knowing that they had always had a heart to obey when Paul was there, and stressing just how much more important it is that they seek unto the same obedience now that he is not, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Take note in this that Paul is speaking of the nature of their interaction one uh, one among another, and what he, he... said is this, he said, when I, effectively the implication is when I was with you, you did a really good job at doing this. There was no bickering. There was no arguing. You had the mind of Christ. There weren't murmurings and disputings while I was there. And now that I'm gone, it's even more important that you maintain these distinctives. And, and again, he's going to tell us why, and we'll, we'll talk about it more next week, because of how essential unity in the church is to the testimony of the church. And we've got to understand that. So remember from chapter 1 how burdened it seemed that Paul was for this church. Remember Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 1, verses 8 through 11, For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all, in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things which are that things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense, till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, unto the glory and praise of God. And we spoke at that time of the deep burden that's found in these words and indeed in this epistle for this church and how the report from Epaphroditus must have been very troubling to Paul about how there was bickering and arguing within this, the, the context of the church. How fearful Paul likely was that the church would become ineffective for Christ because of their own personal failure to find unity one among another. Now, Paul has no ability to get there, right? Right? He is in prison. This is one of the prison epistles. He's in prison at this time. He has no means by which to get to that church and to correct things himself. But he knows that they know what they need to do. And his great desire is that they would, much more now that he cannot come to them, do this for themselves. Now, with that explanation in place, if I explain that if I explain that context, that he is contrasting the fact that he, he, he was there and now he's not able to be there, that, that, he, that they did this thing, assuming the mind of Christ in his presence, and now it's needed much more in his absence, what would we then understand work out your own salvation to mean? We've spoken in the recent past about the fact that salvation in the Bible can take on multiple different ideas. It can mean being born again, right? Being saved from the, 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 the future penalty of a sinner's hell. Being saved from the power of sin. One day being saved from the presence of sin. Uh, that, that is one way that salvation is used. But it can also mean being healed from a sickness, right? Right? the idea of people being saved, being healed from a sickness. It can also mean being delivered from the power of sin in one's life. That as a person uh, was brought out of sinful choices and into proper choices, be it a believer or an unbeliever, uh, that that concept was called salvation. Several other ways that this word salvation is used. This is actually the third time and the final time within the book of Philippians where this word salvation is used. Notice the other two times that we've seen it. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 19, Paul says, For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. We certainly know Paul's not talking about hoping that he gets born again, right? He's not saying that the Philippian church needs to pray that he'd be saved. He's saying, I'm in jail and I want salvation, right? I want to get out of jail, I know that I will be able to do so through your prayers. I will, I will be able to, to, to be brought out of the, the persecution and the circumstances within which I find myself. Then again in Philippians 1.28, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. So in the second context here, uh, it's used a little bit more ambiguously, uh, either as a token of the fact that they... That, that as they they suffer patiently persecution, the world says those people are uh, they're 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 self-destructive. They're rejoicing in their persecution. We we martyr them and and they they rejoice. We we throw them in prison and they sing. Uh, we beat them and they and they forgive us. These people are self-destructive. They just want, and, and to them, it's a sign of perdition, but to us, it's a sign of salvation, right? It's a sign that, that the Lord is working. That could be bor- uh, a sign of, of being born again, of the Holy Spirit's indwelling, and that would be a perfectly fine uh, interpretation of this. It could also simply be that the, the deliverance from the world, right? A sign that through Christ, we are no longer placing our priorities on the things of this life, but on the things of the life that is to come. That's not being born again. That's just the idea of that we have been saved out of this world, right? That we, have, we, we, are, no, we are loosely holding this world, so much so that we're, we're not as uh, uh, concerned about our body, we're not as concerned about the physical as we are about the spiritual. And so either way we interpret it, it's a valid use case. And this being said, as we see this word here used, we... Take the way it's been used throughout the book already. We, we impose it upon this context. We see if that works. And then we draw a conclusion there. So, so back to verse 12. They're called to work out their own salvation. This word work out here meaning to accomplish or to finish. To work out fully. To bring to full fru- fruition. Used 23 times in the New Testament speaking of doing, working, producing. And so we have this framework for interpretation. Now, we know that it does not mean being born again. It's not in the context. wouldn't be proper in the context. And by the way, the Scriptures don't bear out the idea that we can work unto our own salvation, right? John 3:16 through 18 tells us quite the opposite. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. We are not called to do in order to be saved from spiritual condemnation and internal separation from God, but rather we are called to place our full faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Jesus did say in one passage that we had to work to be saved, but then he explicitly defined the work of God. John chapter 6, verses 26 to 29. Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye seek me, not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat the loaves and were filled. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for the meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. Then said they unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him, Whom He hath sent. Right, so Jesus made this very clear. I cannot work out my own salvation as it relates to being born again. Salvation is by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. I believe and I'm saved. The work of God, if we if, if we want to use that terminology, is to believe on him who God hath sent. Paul, of course, saying a very similar thing to the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16, verses 27 through 31. And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. The jailer asked what they could do, and Paul said, what he could do, and Paul said, believe. To this end, we know that born-again salvation from condemnation is not something that we can earn, not something that we can work out in that way. But, and this is important, it doesn't mean we don't pr- play a role at all. We must invoke our will unto belief, mustn't we? We must yield our will to God's will. We must place ourselves under the authority of the gospel. And trust Christ alone. If we didn't need to do this, it would have been a quite quite a silly thing for Jesus to have spent three years of his life calling men to do exactly that, wouldn't it? It would have been a silly thing for the apostles to give their very lives to get a message out if none of this was necessary. None of it would be necessary if men need not invoke their will and make a choice to believe the gospel. Now, as we consider this concept whereby our role is faith and God's role is then to save and to justify and to sanctify, once again, we carry this knowledge into verse 12 as we try to understand what this passage is saying and we add this to the knowledge of our context to know that Paul is not calling people to be born again. He's writing to believers in a church, a group he knows and and loves well, a group in whom he has full confidence in their grace. Philippians chapter 1 established this already. He isn't fearing that they don't know Christ, much to the contrary. He's calling them to live out their knowledge of Christ. And so, one more important thing to mention in verse 12 before moving on to verse 13. Paul says here, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Recall how our King James writers wrote the scriptures. Recall how they use the, plural, the the second person pronouns. When we see a thee and a thou and a thy in the Bible, we're looking at a second person singular pronoun. When we see a you or a your or a ye in the Bible, we're looking at a second person plural pronoun, talking to a group. As Paul speaks here of them working out their own salvation, notice he doesn't say work out thine own salvation, their individual salvation. And he doesn't say your own salvations. He says your own salvation. He's not talking to them as individuals. He's talking to them as a church, right? He's compelling the church to bear the mind of Christ. And he's saying that in his absence, you need to work out your own salvation, your your own deliverance as a church. You need to, to, to work out how to bring about in your church the unity that you need in the church. And so the salvation which he's talking about here must be this concept, right? That if they do not find unity, if they do not seek to and successfully maintain the mind of Christ, they are on a road to destruction. They will lose their testimony. We'll talk about that next week for Christ. They will lose uh, their capacity to function as a body in Christ. Paul says you are headed toward destruction if you don't change. So, as you have always obeyed in my absence... I mean, in my presence, now much more in my absence, figure it out. Work out your own salvation. Align with the scriptures. Do what's right. With fear and trembling. Because if you don't work out your own salvation, you'll end up experiencing destruction. So Paul is speaking to the church, addressing at the beginning, as we saw, the saints, the bishops, and the deacons. And this is why the church needed to be in such fear and trembling. Not because their eternal life was at stake, but because the church was headed to inevitable carnality if they could not figure out unity. If they did not assume the mind of Christ, they would assume the the mind of, of the carnal and it would end up in their destruction. Continuing to verse 13. For it is God that worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So here we have what might seem to be the complete opposite message, right? Verse 12, work out your own salvation. Verse 13, God works it in you, right? Both to will and to do of his good pleasure. To to, to bring about in us his will and his power. To do the things he's called us to do. In verse 12, it seems like we're being called to 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 as a church to work unto our own unity, and then Paul says in verse 13, but only God can work in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. How do we reconcile these things? Well, first let me make it very clear that the word work is a completely different word in verse 13 than it is in verse 12. The translations are very good. The first word speaks to accomplishing something completely. If we might say it this way, realizing the fullness of one's resource. Bring about the fullness of your salvation. Work out the fullness of your redemption from this carnal mindset. The second word speaks of something effective or operating within. If we might say it this way, empowering or enlivening one another. So we see here a contrast, but but not really. Paul is calling them to realize the fullness of their own salvation from this carnality of mind. But what's he telling them? what he's telling them is this. You can't do it on your own. You need to work out your own salvation. You need to quit with the disunity and you need to find harmony, but not carnal unity. Unity around the mind of Christ. Assume the mind of Christ. If you assume the mind of Christ, you'll begin to esteem other better than yourself. You'll begin to place others in front of yourself and it will work out your unity problem because God will work in you both the will and to do of his good pleasure. In other words, get right with God and your unity problem will go away. Right? That's the point. You have a unity problem that you need to get figured out. But the way of, to get it figured out is not to have a, a meeting where we all hold hands and decide and, and, and try to fi- figure out... Yeah, we couldn't do that right now anyway, Right? Uh, where, where we all um, stand six feet away from each other and pretend to hold hands and, and, and talk about the, our our interests and figure out where it is that we that we that we have common interests and look for common ground. That that's not that's not it. We're not gonna we're not gonna we're not gonna find church salvation that way. We're not going to find church salvation. We're not going to find the kind of unity that will give us testimony and power uh, uh, with with ourselves and with others by conjuring up within ourselves some means by which we can all rally around a united cause. If we want the kind of unity, if we want the kind of of means by which we will see the, the disunity within our midst melt away, it can only come one way properly. And that way is by assuming the mind of Christ. And then when we have the mind of Christ, God will work in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And there will be that unity. We've talked about this. We talk about this during our, our family series as it relates to husbands and wives. We talk about this uh, in any number of relationship contexts. That, that as one would draw closer together, that if I want to draw closer to my wife, the goal is not going to be that we draw closer to one another explicitly by, by, by moving toward one another. But the best way to do it is if we're both moving toward the same object, Christ that as we move closer to Christ, we are inevitably moving closer one to another. That if we make Christ our center, then it will be God that will work in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure as it relates to love and submission. And then love and submission do not become a chore or a task or something I have to manipulate or conjure up in my life. I don't have to conjure up love for my wife. She doesn't have to conjure up submission in her heart unto her husband because we're both seeking Christ. So Christ is working in me, both the will and to do of His good pleasure. So we work out our own salvation in our marriage by submitting ourselves to Christ, and then Christ works in us to save our marriage, right? We work out our own salvation in our church by seeking unto the mind of Christ and then the mind of Christ will work in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure, thus bringing unity to the church. And that is the idea here. We live out the fullest realities of church effectiveness through unity, and we find that unity in Christ as we assume the mind of Christ. So God is working in us both to will and to do. Of his good pleasure. He gives us the desire, the intent, and the purpose, and he gives us the empowerment to bring about God's good pleasure within our midst. Now, if you have your Bibles open, you'll notice that his good pleasure, the his in his good pleasure is italicized. In our King James Bibles, this means that the translators added the word for clarification and for understanding means it was, it's not in the original Greek. If you were to go back to the Greek, you would not actually find his. You would not find the third person singular pronoun there. You would only find, uh, if, if we were to read it very roughly, for it is God that worketh in you both to will and to do of good pleasure. More literally translated, the text would say this, for God is the one affecting in us both the will and the power in the behalf of that which is best or that which is good in behalf of this good work. And we thus ask, what is this good? What is this thing that he's working his will and his power to effect in us? It's unity through the mind of Christ. And so we're called to live this way. We know why to live this way. This is how we live this way. And the idea between the two verses, Paul is calling on the church to obey even more in his absence than in his presence, and that they thus would position themselves to take full advantage of the power of God to be realized in their lives, be good stewards of the commission upon them unto unity by submitting themselves to the mind of God. Christ, and as they submit themselves to the mind of Christ, they are thus seeking out the Lord's uh, obedience to the Lord, who will then work in them this unity, and this is where I think we Christians can get a little muddied. We read the words of the scriptures, and then we begin to concoct strategies on how to see them worked about. very very similar to Abraham, right? When God promised him an heir. And he says, well, my servant is Eleazar of Damascus. And God said, no, 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 no. It's not going to be Eleazar of Damascus. It's going to be a child from your own bowels. And he says, okay, that's interesting because my wife is barren. And then Sarah speaks up and says, well, then take Hagar, my handmaid. Have a child so that you can have the promise from the Lord. And Abraham says, yeah, that's kind of a good idea. See, he took the promise of God and he said, okay, I've got this great promise from God. Now, how do I make it work? How do I work it out? See, we, we, we see this call from God that we need to be a unified church. And then we start to say, okay, how can we become a unified church? And as I said before, we start to find all sorts of ways that we can try to unify one another. Well, we don't become a unified church through carnal means. We become a unified church when each one of us submits ourselves to the mind of Christ. And it will be God who works in us, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. We think of ourselves too often and our shortcomings and our carnal desires and we box ourselves into a manner of thinking and into a manner of living, demanding of ourselves certain actions and inactions and then we spend our days doing our best to produce both the will unto these actions and uh, the power to bring them about and we just become exhausted. And again, it becomes a net loss and all of a sudden, all of the pouring that I'm doing into others... Becomes, becomes just a drain on me. Well, because it's not God that's working in me both to will and to do of his good pleasure. It's me that's concocting the means by which to will and to do of God's good pleasure. I have all the good intentions in the world as it relates to what God wants me to do, but I'm not trusting God to empower me to do it. So we attempt to produce the power within ourselves to perform these actions, and we falter. By the way, this is something that is common among pastors. It's been something that your pastor has struggled with on any number of occasions. Whereas it relates to ministry. I have attempted to to produce the will and the power to do of God's good pleasure in this church. And I've had any number of of times where I've had to remember Christ will build his church. Not not Pastor Wickler's church, Christ's church, right? Right? Not Pastor Wickler's ministry. Pastor Wickler is the sheepdog, right? Pastor Wickler hears the whistle of the shepherd and does what the shepherd tells him to do. And I've got to remember that. We've all got to remember that. Because it's not actions explicitly that please God, is it? What pleases God? We know what pleases God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him, right? For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. We seek the Lord in faith. We bear out the fruit of faith. We allow the mind of Christ to dwell in us richly. We submit ourselves to Christ to be the power to do the work in me that I cannot do in myself. And, of course, that comes with bearing the fruit of the Spirit. That comes with abiding in Christ. And as I'm abiding in Christ, as I'm seeking unto Christ, as I'm obeying, as I assume the mind of Christ, then Christ works in me to will and to do of his good pleasure. So we've taken a journey through the text of Philippians chapter 2, seeking to understand an essential command for the church. First, the content of that command. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let each esteem other better than himself. Then we asked the question, why live this way? To which we gave three answers. Because we're told to. Because there's rewards in heaven. Because there's joy in this life. It is, in fact, this last point that we spoke of today as we considered the third message, asking the question, how do we live this way? And the answer is... We submit to God in faith. The answer is we recognize the call that God has given to us that we would follow, that we would believe, that we would, that we would take up our cross and follow him. And as we submit to doing things God's way, as we acknowledge our role in the process and God's role in the process, we don't conjure up in ourselves the mind of Christ. We don't produce the mind of Christ. We can't manipulate ourselves into the mind of Christ. I can't, I can't build se- the, 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 uh, enough self-discipline into my life to bring about the mind of Christ. I, I can't do that. Instead, I seek into the mind of Christ, and then it is God that will work in me, both to will and to do of his good pleasure, to bring me and to bring the church as we seek it together into unity. Thus, we work out our corporate salvation with this fear and trembling. I don't dare be the one in the body that is dwelling outside of the mind of Christ, that is dwelling outside of the unity of the believers, that is the one who is, who is compromising the believers of the church because of an unwillingness to assume the mind of Christ. And so we let this mind be in us, which was also in Christ Jesus, to walk in the Spirit, to abide in Christ, to assume this mind, to esteem other better than ourselves. And then we watch as the mind of Christ produces the works by which we, in love, serve one another. So the question is this, is this you today? Are you living this way, in joy and liberty of the Spirit? Are you walking in the spirit? Are you abiding in Christ? Are you assuming the mind of Christ and then letting God work in you to will and to do of his good pleasure? Are you watching as God works these things in you as you are submitted to him in faith? Or have you been striving, demanding of your flesh a product which your flesh has no capacity to produce? You want unity, but you've been trying to conjure up unity in yourself rather than allowing God to bring unity in his way. Have you been attempting to bend your will to a way of thinking which has no capacity into which to conform because you're trying to bend the carnal around the spiritual rather than allowing God to work the spiritual in you? And the call for us is to yield, to submit, to trust and obey, to believe what God's word has said, to recognize that the mind of Christ is to esteem other th- better than myself, to thus dedicate myself to following Christ and watch as Christ works in me both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for the promises of your word and as it relates to these things. Thank you that we do not bear the burden and the responsibility of carrying this weight on our own shoulders, of, a, of having to um, somehow conjure up within ourselves the means by which to convince ourselves that serving others at the expense of, our, uh, of us is um, what we want, for it will never be this way. Help us rather to tirelessly, carefully keep our eyes focused upon you, knowing that as we follow you, as we exercise the simple faith, not necessarily easy, but definitely simple, that then it will be you that works in our church to will and to do of your good pleasure. And I pray that that would be the case, that you would work in the midst of the body of Christ, that you would work in us unity, that we would not seek to conjure it up through carnal means, but rather that that you would work in us this unity by means of our submission to the word of God. To the gospel of Christ. We thank you that we might trust you with these things. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.